I bet you could find one new article a day about what such and such poll or survey says. And I bet I don't have to outline any specific examples of a poll or survey that was misleading or just flat out wrong for you to be able to think of one on your own. Polls are extremely prevalent in media today, but that doesn't mean they're more trustworthy or that polling is some perfect science. And yet, in the image of their professional counterparts, student publications are doing them for pretty much anything and everything, it seems, including stories that are ultimately their most ambitious endeavors. That's a problem. Why? A couple weeks ago, I spoke to Eric Thomas, the executive director of the Kansas Scholastic Press Association. He said he gets nervous every time he opens a student publication to some big eye-catching survey-says statistic. We talked about why his first advice to journalism programs preparing to do a big survey is to just straight up run away from it. He says, don't put the survey out. We talked about why social media is not a good place for polling, what can be learned from professionals, and how the more controversial a subject is, the less reliable your survey answers are going to be. My advice, listen to this episode before you prepare your next poll. But I'm biased. This is Journalism 101, and I'm Alex McNamee. Please take your seat because class is now in session. So I'm really curious, uh, when we first connected to do this, I guess a couple weeks ago or whatever, you said that that uh, KU was just getting started with classes up again. So I'm curious about this with, with all colleges, but what does this look like for you guys and how has it been going in the first couple of weeks? Um, so I'm completely teaching online. Everything that I'm teaching is um, via Blackboard right now or Zoom. And um, a lot of that is based on student preference. A lot of the students just said that this is exactly what they wanted. And so uh, previous semesters, like in the fall, we tried to do everything we could to push everything to be an in-person class. And what we found out is that half of our students really wanted that and that half of our students just really wanted to um, you know, be at home with parents, to be mm-hmm. uh, working from wherever they wanted to work. And so we tried to accommodate that as a university. And um, I think that's been a stronger, uh, I think that's been a stronger model because the students who are online, they are fully into being online. And the students who are in person, they are much more energetic about being in person. And so um, and so the buy-in's a lot better. Um, I'm teaching one class that's kind of a theory class a little bit. It's a mm-hmm. It's visual storytelling. So it's about video and photography and design and a little bit of everything. Um, And then the other one is strictly a software class, like let's learn Lightroom um, and Photoshop and After Effects. And so that translates really well to online as well. So um, I think the biggest question is like, what's going to happen in upcoming semesters? Are students Mm going to continue wanting this remote model for the next semester, the next five semesters, the next five years, or are they going to, you know, just be super thirsty to get back to on campus um, 
learning. So that, I think that's the biggest question. Yeah. And, and when that starts to really, really, really affect a campus like that, that is huge and, and uh, running, you know, air conditioning and, and heating and all, you know, just the nitty gritty of stuff to keep a, a campus like that running when it's a ghost town. Yeah. And, and bars and restaurants, yeah. and, you know, campus dining and all of that kind of stuff. I mean, there, there's so many people that are employed, not just by the university, but by, you know, the, you know, the, the Saturday afternoon football games, the fact that people mm-hmm. aren't coming in from Norman and, um, you know, from Austin to see their, their teams play against the Jayhawks like that, that has a huge effect on the university too the college basketball games are really uh, weird to watch on TV. <laughs> yeah. The cutouts, the cutouts in the professional stadiums. And then, um, you know, just the lack of a raucous crowd when it's something like Allen Fieldhouse, which is normally loud for every single game. It's, yeah. it's, it doesn't even feel like the same kind of uh, like same kind of sporting event. Yeah, exactly. Okay. Let's talk about polls. Um, yeah. First of all, I thought we um, gave up on polls four years ago in 2016 and just stopped doing them all together. But I guess that's not uh, not the case. We're still using those in every way, shape and form. Well, I think that I think you bring up kind of the, the elephant in the room there, and that's just basically how reliable are polls, even when they're done by the very most um, experienced and professional people out there. And I think that we found that, you know, um, we are less and less um, tolerant of mistakes by polls. If we if a poll misses by two or three percent, we feel like that's a complete failure of the poll. Mm-hmm. And then also that polls um, are, you know, that they're very hard to do, right? They're very hard to get to that margin of error at the same time. And so um, I think that's 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 been playing out in the media with, you know, with websites like 538 who have done all of this forecasting and all of this modeling and they have mm-hmm. people who have advanced degrees in mathematics and statistics and all of that stuff. And still they struggle and still they get kind of, you know, um, hung in effigy out in the media for missing small things, even, even missing things by, like I said, a, a percentage point or two. And meanwhile, um, I think student publications have been relying and hungry to do polling as much as ever because they see how much um, how much appetite there is for you know definite answers to indefinite questions. I think. Yeah, it's been kind of even though people lash out at polls for being wrong, it's it's at the same time been sort of glamorized. And you mentioned like 538, somebody like Nate Silver has, you know, developed a kind of sexy reputation for being this wizard of being able to predict what's going to happen in this or that. Yeah. And I think the reality, what he would say and what he says over and over again is that I'm not 
predicting the future. I'm telling you what the probability of a certain future is going to be given all of this information. And so, you know, as many caveats as he can put on his information, he's constantly doing that. Um, I think that there are other people who are working with polls and kind of digesting the information of polls who are trying to make that into like a concrete certainty. And I just, I think that's an illusion. I think that's the thing that um, is probably uh, most confusing to readers about polls. And I think that's quite honestly what um, high school journalists and college journalists are most confused by when they're working with polls is they, they see a percentage number there and they think that that means that it's absolutely the truth in that direction. And that may not be the case. Let's talk a little bit about just the, the history of it. Um, as it relates to high school journalism, how long do you feel like you know, student publications have been using that as a, I guess for lack of a better term, a, a crutch for stories that they're doing or flashy numbers that they want to be able to present to their readers? So embarrassingly, my high school journalism career started with polling. I was, um, I was the photography editor for a fledgling um, high school magazine, and we decided, <laughs> let's go ahead and do a sex issue. The whole issue is going to be about sex. And so we're going to go ahead and poll our student body, the entire student body, through their homerooms about their sex lives. And when I say that, I mean, we asked every question and this was in the mid nineties and it was during, and it was in Indiana and it was, uh, and it was an explicit survey that we, that we sent out to every single student from freshmen all the way up through seniors. And, um, the results were what you would expect. They were, it was a community outcry. We had parents who were saying, who is asking our our daughter this question? Who's asking our son this question? And what right do they have to know the answer to this question? And, um, you know, at the time it felt to us like we were kind of sticking it to the man, right? That we were, that we were um, asking questions that nobody else wanted to answer. And I, I, I think I would still applaud, you know, 17 or 18 year old um, Eric for wanting to do that, that story and do that reporting. But I also would ask 17 or 18 year old Eric, like when that sophomore student fills out a survey about their sex life, do you really think they're telling you the truth? Like yeah. when they when they circle a, an A or a B or a C on a multiple choice question about, you know, their sex life, do you really think that you're getting their answer? Like, I mean, you can't ask a sophomore boy like what he wants for lunch without getting a wisecrack from him. So like, what are the chances that he's not either showing off or lying or hiding something or making a joke under his breath about circling a particular answer? And so um, and so when you ask like how far the history goes back, I'm sure the history goes back well before my personal, you know, incident with it. But I think the thing that I would remember about that incident is that it led to like a full community uproar to the point that my, my journalism advisor was nearly fired. Like she was nearly, uh -huh. she was nearly out of a job. And because we decided we wanted to send the survey out. And so we were probably getting very unreliable information. We were causing a huge uproar and we were, you know, we were we were potentially forcing our advisor out of a job and all to get a bunch of information that 
probably wasn't even that trustworthy. Right. You look back on it and, and besides the uproar, you know, you think about, I don't know, essentially the, the risks of reporting that information and what, what kind of impression you are imparting on your readership at that point. And maybe people who answered honestly or feel a certain way versus people who are like, it's going to spike the numbers here. Yeah. And, you know, my job now at KSPA is when, um, when student newspapers, you know, email me or they call me and they say, we're going to put a survey like this out into the field. What are some things that we should be thinking about? My first advice to them is don't put the survey out. And it's not because I want them to be timid about covering a particular topic. It's because I I like to ask them this question and maybe the listeners of the podcast can kind of ask themselves this question. Like, what if you ask a student um, on a survey, what was the first time that they were sexually active? And what if the number comes back on your survey in your school as being 13 and a half years old? Do you trust that number? And if you don't, why don't you trust that number? And then what if it comes back that the average number is 17 and a half years old? And do you trust that number? And if you don't, why don't you trust that number? And I think what generally is going to happen is you're going to go ahead and decide what you think the answer is to that that question, what you think the community's answer to that question is, and you're only going to trust it if it aligns with what you think it it should be. And so, um, why are you polling in the first place, right? Like, if if you're yeah. if you're not going to trust a number unless it aligns with your worldview, then you're probably just asking for some confirmation of your worldview. And what if it comes back as 11 and a half years old? God forbid, right? Mm -hmm. Well, then you're not going to publish that. But how is that number that much different from 13 and a half? Or how is that different from another answer out there too? And at what point do you not trust it? So, um, you know, I, I feel like the more controversial the subject, the more unreliable the answers are going to be. And, um, and I just try to caution all the time that, um, that these kind of things, these kind of polls, they take real skills to pull off. And I was going to say, I feel like so much of the reason or motivation behind why you're polling is to find a certain number that is going to support what you think you're going to find and what you want to add to your story. And so your argument then would be, this is not the reason to be doing it in the first place. Yeah, I mean, it, it should be reporting, right? Mm-hmm. It should not, it should not, it should be, um, we're curious about this subject and we want to know more about it. And if you truly want to know more about the subject, then you would do what professional journalists do. And what most professional journalists do, whether they work for New York Times or Atlantic Magazine or wherever they work, they don't go out and do polls about this stuff. If they're going to do a um, story about vaping, then they go ahead and use a nationwide study that was done by, let's say, Butler University about teenage vaping, right? They're going to, they're not going to go out and do that. First of all, they don't have the time to do it. Second of all, they don't have the money to do it. And third of all, they're humble enough to know that they don't have the answers. And so what I think, what I think high school journalists are trying to do, and I apply, I really, I think that this is ambitious and good is that they think my survey of my school 
is going to be more accurate than a nationwide survey is of every high school. They think my school is really different. Whatever the school is, you know, uh, you know, whatever, whatever high school it is, you always feel like my, our school is its own little universe and it's totally different. And the, the reality probably is that more schools are more similar than they are different, right? Yeah, I used to teach at a high school and the students at this high school insisted that a school that was one mile away from us was so different from us. Like they were the most, like it was a totally different organism. They were a different species. We had nothing in common. And the reality is, no, they probably are the more similar to us than anybody else. And so um, when there are, if there are nationwide surveys of X and Y and Z, then those are the things that you should trust because those are done by professional pollsters who are getting reliable answers to those questions. You mentioned professional pollsters. You mentioned the science of it. Tell us a little bit about how a good, hopefully accurate poll actually gets done and how, if at all, that can be converted to what a high school journalist can do. Yeah. So this is, I was, I was doing some research on this in, in advance <laughs> of talking to you again, because every time that I do this exact research that you're talking about here, Alex, every single time that I do this, I get terrified. Like I get truly <laughs> terrified by the math that goes into it. So like up here on my computer right now, I have plugged in like a margin of error calculator and the thing that always makes me just do a U-turn on behalf of myself or my students or other people's students is let's just say that your average, your population of your school is a thousand. That's a pretty mid, mid-sized school in many states, about a thousand students. And let's say that your confidence level, which is this uh, measure of how reliable you think your survey is. Let's say your confidence level is 95%. Now that is really great. Like that's professional pollster kind of great. And that means that you, if you did this survey 95 times under these parameters that you would get the same, you would get it within the same margin, basically 95 out of hundred times. That's really unlikely for a high school publication to pull that off. Even if you grant yourself that, even if you give yourself wizarding, like excellent professional skills, then your sample size in a school of a thousand still has to be a hundred. You have to still, you have to still find a hundred students. And then with your professional skills and a hundred students, one out of every 10 students in your school, your margin of error, Alex, I want you to guess, what do you think your margin of error is under those situations? I don't know. It's got to be something that looks pretty bad, right? <laughs> it is. It's 9%. It's 9%. 9%. So that means that if you did that, uh, you know, that survey, that sex survey, and you said, you know, have you had your first sexual experience yet? And 30% said yes, that could be 30 but it also could be 39 or it also could be 21. So it's mm. somewhere between 21 and 39. Well, that's, you're almost off by a factor of two by the time that you do that between 21 and 39. And so that's the point where I generally on behalf of myself and uh, my students and, you know, the, the, the members of our organization, I've generally just say, run away from this, like mm -hmm. get terrified and run away from it. Now, 
that's not realistic, as you said, right? People are going to want to do their own polls. They're going to want to do their own surveys. And so what are the things that we can learn about how professional pollsters do their work? And the thing that I generally come back to is that a fair sample is a random sample, right? Mm -hmm. That you are going to find people randomly. And what's the most typical way that people poll these days for student publications? They do it on social media. And social media is not a representation of your school. If it's mm -hmm. on Twitter, it's probably students who are more politically active. If it's on Instagram, it's probably students who are overwhelmingly more female. If it's on Facebook, it's overwhelmingly 40-year-olds, right? <laughs> so, you know, it's not, it's not random at all by doing it over um, by doing it over social media. And then sometimes students will say, well, I, I'll, I'll go ahead and do it in the cafeteria. Well, the cafeteria at your school may not be a random sample because maybe all of the students who um, are in choir, they eat their lunch in the choir classroom. So you've missed all of those students. Mm -hmm. Or maybe a bunch of the jocks go and lift weights during um, during lunch, and then you've missed out on all of them as well. So how are you going to truly get a random sample of your school? Are you going to interview and get everybody who has um, an M at the beginning of their last name? That would get Alex in this survey, and it wouldn't get me. And that's a random way to choose students because, you know, students with an M in their name aren't more likely to be in the choir room or the, you know, athletics. And so you, you're trying to find random ways to do stuff like that. Um, but that's not the way that student journalists generally do it. And so that's, the, that's another part that makes me nervous about the, um, the instinct to do polling all the time. Mm -hmm. What's, what's the alternative? Cause here's what you know, when we see these big controversial stories about sex or drugs or rock and roll or the hybrid learning or whatever, you see polls done to, to be the heart of your story, or you see, you know, student journalists just saying, okay, we're going to, we're going to interview people, but, but they're all going to be allowed to be anonymous. And it's just mm -hmm. going to be a story of eight random anonymous sources, which also does not feel good when you're looking right. at it. No, I think that, I think you've, you've got it right there. And I, I think that we just got to take the lead from what professional journalists would do in this situation. And so I have this whole kind of slide deck of these stories that are done by professional journalists about exactly these topics. You know, one of the most common ones that people are sending lots of surveys out about right now is gender identity. Mm. And it's, it's also a topic that really gets parents um, and community members quotation mark community members, people who, um, who, who want to, you know, get on students' cases about these things, they get really riled up about, you just sent this to everybody in the school. I can't believe you'd ask these kinds of questions about gender identity, sex, um, alcohol, drugs, like you said. Um, so I think the, I think the, the solution though, is to do what the professional journalists do, which is to go find a really good, um, survey and they're not hard to find, right? Like, mm -hmm. um, like if you want to know about the sex lives of teenagers, like th there, there's an, there's a survey that's been going on from, I think the national institutes of health that's been going on for 
decades now. And it tracks, you know, teen pregnancy rates, it tracks tracks, you know, how, um, how soon, um, students are having sex in their sex lives. It tracks, um, those things based on gender identity. It tracks all of those things. It's been doing it for years and years and years. And so, um, you know, I think it's really, I think it's a lot easier to, in a way to ask a student, Hey, I got this national survey. Can you, respond to that rather than saying, we just did a survey of the school and we found out that 30% of sophomores are doing X, Y, and Z. That seems a lot more risky for that source to comment on. But if you talk about um, national trends and then you talk about what's happening at your school, I think that's, I think that's really important too. I, th- I think back to, and Alex, you may remember this too, the, I, I think it was probably about 15 or 20 years ago that um, there was this big furor about high school students wearing like bracelets to show like what their, uh, what their level of like sexual promiscuity was (laughs) at that point. And that's one of those stories that like something was actually happening at a school and that, you know, using national data and talking to local sources and talking about that local phenomenon, that would have been a really interesting story. But if, if you're just doing it without a reason, without like, as I was in high school, we're just going to do a sex issue because mm-hmm. we're just going to do a sex issue. I'm not sure if that's the right instinct in that way. Yeah. Just going to do a sex issue because we do one a year and that's the big exciting issue that us kids get to put out. <laughs> Exactly. Exactly. And, you know, we, 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 we emulate the coverage that we see in the professional media and there's certainly tons of coverage of that. So we can't blame students for wanting to cover that, but that doesn't mean that they shouldn't, uh, you know, work as hard as the best journalists out there to get reliable information to their readers. Mm -hmm. So just do your reporting. Yeah. And the reporting, like you said, it might involve anonymous sources. We would hope not. Mm-hmm. That's that's not our best source of reporting. But you know, it might involve um, it might involve people who've gone through experiences and are outspoken about whatever their experiences are. You know, we've made this kind of all about um, you know surveying based on sex. But if we were if we were to do something um, like about vaping or something like that. I don't, I think that, I think that students could find a fellow student who would be willing to say, yes, I have vaped. I do vape. I, um, I know I have friends who vape. I interact with that community. Like I, I don't think that if you talked to literally dozens of people, I don't think that every single one of them would, would, um, insist on being an anonymous source. Now, if you talk to one, and you tell them right off the bat, you can be an anonymous source. Well, then that's where your reporting is probably going to end because right. um, that student is going to say, well, yeah, sure. I'll be an anonymous source and I'll tell you a bunch of stories and, and, you know, they won't be very authoritative, but I'll tell you them to you. And then you as a reporter haven't worked as hard as I think your reader would want you to. Well, yeah. And then that gets into a whole different conversation about learning uh, how and when to bring up the anonymous source option. Yeah. And you know, the thing to remember too, is that when you're doing a poll, you're not, you're not avoiding anonymous sources. You're like giving a megaphone to a thousand anonymous sources. Like everybody's an anonymous source when you're polling. And so 
by polling hundreds of people who are anonymous, you're actually committing the same risk that you would be if you polled or you interviewed one anonymous source. And in a lot of ways, it's more dangerous because you don't even know who those anonymous sources are. I mean, you put something out in your school's social media, that doesn't mean that the neighboring high school is not following you on Twitter and isn't responding to that, um, to that tweet or that Instagram post, you know, it could be anybody. It could be, it could be a, a grandma. It could be a five-year-old. It could be, you know, somebody from a different continent. So, um, you know, at least when you're an, interviewing somebody who's an anonymous source, you personally know who they are and you can kind of vet them on your own and know whether you trust them. What's the scope of, of how often you have somebody contacting you about, does this survey look good or we're thinking of doing this? What's the scope of how big of a, and common of an issue you see it as? I think that my radar for how common this is, isn't how often I get contacted. Mm. It's probably how often I open up student publications and see an like a, a graphic on the side of a story that has a percentage sign next to it. Every time I do that, I get really, really nervous. I just, I open up that publication. And it says 37% of students think this. The most common thing that's underneath that 37% of students think this is absolutely no explanation of how they did the poll, how many students they polled, whether it was yeah. via social media or in person. And so now I think that, I think, probably that's the most important thing to remember is that you're at that moment, your reader has written off that research. So now you've gone and done a whole bunch of work to not convince your reader that, that what you've done is anything near factual. And so that's generally what I do when I see that. Um, and so, so I think that, I think that's the best indication of how, um, how often it's happening is how often you just see it used in student publications. I think my, the time that it comes to me as a state um, student press organization director is that it comes to me most often when there is a controversy surrounding the survey. A school board says you can't poll about this. Um, a student publication is going to publish a poll and nobody believes that it's true. Those are the things that come to me most often. But I think what happens more often than not is everybody just kind of shrugs their shoulders and publishes the, um, the percentages even without believing in them wholeheartedly. Yeah. Or you're doing a, you've done a poll on vaping to say, um, have you vaped in school before? And the percentage comes back 35% yes. And then your principal is wondering uh, what's going on? Where did you get this information? Who'd you talk to? And that's a whole can of worms. Yeah, I'm, I'm glad you brought that up too. Cause I think that, I think this is the standard that I would ask students to, um, to have when they do their polling. So let's say that um, the student who's going to do this story is really, really into theater. Okay. She's doing a story about vaping, but she's really into theater. If she's going to do a poll about vaping, I would ask her, how willing would you be to use these same methods, the same number of students polled, the same number of the same methods of polling? How, how willing would you be to do that 
um, if the issue was we're going to get rid of the theater department based on the results of this poll, mm. like if, if it were your most important thing in your life, the thing that you cared the most about, how would you want the poll to be done? For me, it would be, you know, student press organizations. I wouldn't want a hundred people at a school to be polled via social media. And the question be, should we get rid of the student newspaper? That would terrify me. That would be really, <laughs> really bad technique, right? For, um, you know, for somebody else, it might be, um, you know, soccer or it might be, um, you know, the chess club or something like that. Would you be willing to put a survey out there in the field and prove that your activity is worth it or not worth it based on this kind of a technique. And I think if that were the case, I think people would be like, well, I want to pull every single person. I want to sit down with them. I want to have focus groups. I want to, I want to make sure that I know everything that people think. I want to be able to ask them questions. And that's the kind of thing that we should do about, um, about things that aren't our kind of pet, our pet project or our pet love that we have. Really good advice. Thanks for sitting down with me, Eric. You bet. It was really, really fun. And I appreciate the time to sit down and uh, chat about this stuff. I hope I wasn't too high up on my soapbox there. Journalism 101 is a production of School Newspapers Online. The music from this episode comes from Pixabay. My interview with Eric was recorded via Zoom. And everything was edited on Audacity and uploaded for you to hear using Anchor FM. You can listen to more episodes of the show anywhere that you get your podcasts. And be sure to subscribe so you don't miss new ones. We'll see you next time.